Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Sweet 212 Sessions. As those of you who listened to my recent conversation with Alona Sagar will know, our plans to relaunch Sweet 212 as a fortnightly show, with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes, were put on hold due to the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the UK's cultural life to a standstill. So instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and other cultural figures about their work, conducted via Skype, so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and hopefully beyond in the early 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them and how the socio-economic conditions of their time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I'd still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweets212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today I'm talking to Erica Scorty, an artist and writer born in Athens and now based in London and Athens. Embracing contingency, humour and lo-fi media, her work explores affect, work and the performance and representation of subjectivity often reprocessing archives of everyday life in an open-ended project of collective and self-narration and consumption. Recent shows include Chief Complaint at Almanac London and Spill Sections at Studio RCA London in 2018. Her work has been presented at the High Line in New York, the Welcome Collection in London, the Kunsthalle Vienne, the Haywood Gallery, the Munich Kunstverein, EMST Athens, the South London Gallery, and she's performed at the ICA, the Wising Festival and Tramway, amongst many other venues. Her writing has appeared in Spells, 21st Century Occult Poetry, published by Agnota Press in 2018, and subject of a great episode of Sweet 212, hosted by Tom Overton. Fiction as Method, published by Sternberg in 2017. Documents of Contemporary Art, Information, published by the MIT Press in 2016, amongst others. And she published a book called The Outage in 2018 through Banner Repeater, which we'll be discussing later in the show. Erica was also guest editor of the Happy Hypocrite Journal in 2019 and a resident at Rupert in Lithuania in summer 2019. She's currently undertaking a practice-based AHRC-funded PhD at Goldsmiths Arts Department, which we'll also be discussing shortly. Erica, welcome to Suite 212. Thanks, Julia, and thanks for inviting me. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Maybe we should start by talking about something that we were both involved with and that I discussed on the previous show with Alona Sagar and that was the dominant topic for us immediately before the coronavirus outbreak which was the recent university college union strikes which particularly affected London's art schools pretty much every art school in London was taking part in the strike. I know your practice has taken a turn towards organising and the politics of freelance life So I wonder if we could talk a bit about your involvement in the UCU strikes, what it was like on the picket line, why you got involved. It was really really important for me to join the strikes for a variety of reasons, but it was also, I didn't realise what an effect being part of them would also uh, have on me. I've never been part of a strike before because I've always been freelance my entire life. And even though I've taught in art schools for years, I had never even heard of the UCU before joining the PhD and getting a graduate trainee uh, position, which that class has now all moved online, so I've never actually going to experience it. But, yeah, I guess 
my work has always looked at the way that individual experience is, is shaped by and shapes collective experience, to put it in a really kind of basic way, and looking at how an autobiography can be written through this kind of collective experience and taking into account the structural and social economic conditions within which they're written. The thing with the strikes was I was really concerned and invested in this idea of turning away from a model of artistic practice and especially kind of artistic success as it's understood in kind of art world terms as being a very individual thing and so how Malik has talked about this but kind of comparing the reality of how most artists live which is on short-term casualized zero hours contracts and if they're lucky kind of commissions or funding which very rarely covers the amount of work that they put in and also with again if they're lucky teaching gigs so that's how most artists live it's by piecing together this very bitty very insecure income stream while what's kind of promised or held out as the idea of success is that somehow you will be the lucky one who will overcome all of this and you know get gallery representation and then kind of fame and success will take care of all of those economic concerns I guess I've really become interested in trying to push against that model of success, which looks at it as an individual thing, and rather they're trying to put effort into how can we make conditions for everybody who works in the arts better uh, collectively. And that also means looking beyond the idea that the artist stands apart from, let's say, the gallery assistant or the technician or people who work in the arts more generally, even in admin, let's say. So I think the strikes were a really important point of coming together with other people who care about making conditions within the education sector, which, as I said, is a, is a key employer of, of artists, and coming together to look at these things as uh, structural issues which we can all have an effect on by coming together and kind of taking this action. In, in terms of the kind of politics of freelance life, I think a lot of my work reflects on the kind of mental health fallout of that of coming to see yourself as this kind of atomized individual having to hustle all the time and having to kind of trade on reputation in order to get by, particularly if you're an artist like myself who doesn't really make very commodifiable objects to sell. If you generally perform or get by by doing talks and teaching gigs, then ironically you end up almost having to sell your reputation as your livelihood. And then I was interested in how can you collectivize reputation when you need a whole new model and I suppose the strikes were just a, a really great way to, to come together with other people who are also not artists or not in the art department across the university and especially in the last strike across lots of different universities and see what our collective action can do together. Yeah I mean that was a big reason why I was on the picket line as well and yes I think it's a really interesting point you make about being freelance and so it being very difficult for you to be involved in collective action a lot of the time. Um, I mentioned this on the previous one of this, these sessions as well but Stephen Pritchard from the movement of cultural democracy is looking to set up a freelance and self-employed workers union at the moment which will hopefully draw together a lot of kind of like writers artists filmmakers people in the creative industry with people who maybe work in the gig economy I'm thinking of um, for example Callum Kant wrote quite interesting book recently about organizing Deliveroo workers and I think that might speak to you because I know you didn't take what is now the quite familiar route of going straight into art school from A-levels, but rather I know you had quite a circuitous route into your art practice. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about your your background and what you did before you sort of came to be doing a PhD um, and became a kind of capital A artist. <laughs> yeah, like where you start putting 
artist on your room uh, as your profession. I always used to think about that, that at the moment when you put artist as your profession, it's like you're saying that you're a good artist or a successful artist in a way that if you put like doctor, it's not it's not quite the same thing. It almost feels like you're making a claim to yourself uh, when you say that is my that is my job. But also just before I talk about that, I think this is another thing that's been really key to me to the coronavirus crisis as well and the way that we've seen how suddenly so many of our gigs have been cancelled and it's become really apparent to everybody, those who weren't particularly politicised and weren't particularly invested in seeing artists as art workers who are also part of a kind of gig economy, suddenly it's become completely clear because there was no safety net. And before, we're always just kind of getting by, like, well, there's always work coming in, you know, you could just a bit more hustle and, you know, there's a bit more. Whereas now, it's like, oh, shit, no, there really is nothing there. And because we traditionally haven't had much in the way of united um, advocacy or collective action to, to secure conditions for us, you know, this is why there's, there's less security now. But also, yeah, as you said, there's also unions that are coming up, like, like the one that you mentioned, but also the UVW, um, United Voices of the World, you know, they also represent um, architects and other people in the arts, as well as uh, workers in the gig economy. So again, it's interesting to see how those jobs that maybe previously hadn't been considered as part of the same sphere are being reconfigured to, to look at them that way and therefore to be able to fight for different rights. But anyway, to go back to your question, yeah, I... Uh, I mean, I grew up in Greece and uh, I moved to London when I was 18 to study chemistry and I, I'd always wanted to do art, but I, it's particularly in Greece at the time, the idea of doing art was very much something that you could only do if you had a lot of money behind you, or at least that was kind of what I grew up understanding, that you know, I had to get a job and I could do chemistry and obviously chemistry can get you a job straight afterwards. So that's what I did, but I only lasted a year. And then I went through, I went to London College of Fashion uh, for a year, and then I did fine art textiles at Goldsmiths, and then I went to Middlesex to do uh, two years of a fine art BA. So I had a real kind of patchy way through those those early years, and really what kind of defined those years for me less than my education was my involvement in various scenes outside of it, like the, I guess what to call the anti-globalisation protests of the late 90s and you know the squad parties that were kind of related uh, to that but yeah again forms of collective action which in a way my more recent inclinations have, have been have been taking me back to and making me think about again after i finished my my ba i worked for many years in community arts like on projects with young people particularly those who are defined as being at risk and i made films and posters and forms of poetry and also worked on a lot of grind videos with some of the uh, young people who had realised that this was quite a good way to use money coming from various like charities and arts organisations was actually to make into a grind videos. The bottom fell out of that when the Tories came in and so much funding was just scrapped pretty much overnight and, and after that I came into doing my MA at St Martin's. But so I think that that kind of that previous experience very much informs my work and maybe for a few years it was in a more kind of latent way in terms of looking at how yeah structural conditions affect our personal experience whereas now maybe I'm coming around to that being a little bit more of an explicit concern i.e. the, the politics of that. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, you say that this is a more explicit concern in your current work. So maybe we could talk about a couple of your recent projects. I'm thinking of Chief Complaint at Almanac in 2018 and the recent performance you did as part of the Royal College of Arts Writing and Performance Conference. So maybe we could talk about some of the concerns you're working working with now and your relationship with sort of autobiographical writing and how it's mediated through technology. Maybe I'll start with the RCA one. Even though both projects draw on a bank of recordings, the chief complaint for the show that I did at Almanac, I used a collection of voice memos where I was using my phone as a kind of proxy therapist following a period of breaking up multiple evictions and general stress, which I now look down as being something like a kind of slow motion breakdown, which again was very much related to freelance life and the constant travelling and feeling of being completely dislocated and running from place to place and kind of not knowing what you were doing at any given moment. So that was chief complaint. And then for the RCA performance, which was called um, Eight Things to Be Scared of Instead of Death, I was drawing on a bank of video diaries, which I had taken over over the period of the previous year, pretty much, which again, in various ways, seemed to chart like another kind of episode of losing it for for different reasons. I had some some measure of of financial stability, but in a weird way, that was because of the funding for my PhD, but in a weird way, that then brought up or made apparent all the ways in which living with constant insecurity and instability has kind of done something to me and made me feel very unstable kind of emotionally and a lot of that was was recorded in these videos but so in eight things to be scared of instead of death kind of i take these video diaries which are i transcribed automatically so I was able to use the script of the video, which was many hours, so thousands of words. I was able to use that text in order to write a video, if that makes sense. And it, it was all about this idea of acedia, which means it's, it's, a, it's a word that's fallen out of use, but as I described in the performance, it used to be, or it was one of the contenders for the eight sins before they became seven. And it describes a kind of loss of enthusiasm and loss of conviction and desire to do your work but particularly it was used in the context of the early desert months who retreated from society and yeah the loss of desire to carry out your spiritual work and it was kind of exemplified or brought on by uh, something called the noonday demon which has also been used as a way of, of describing depression so in a way that's just a very long way of saying that acedia is a kind of precursor to melancholy and to depression but my interest in it was the way that it links to work because it's this kind of loss of meaning which in a way was something that I had kind of gone through and also within my work where I was like why am I making this is it just in order to be able to to pay the bills now and if so then why why be an artist you know there's other things that pay much better than that so all of these kind of conflicts have been coming up in me over the past few years and that's partly what the what the performance addresses using archives or kind of recordings which are unstaged at the time but are then rewritten into something and written in between with kind of more theoretical explanations of this idea of acedia 
all treating me is like a lack of care. Like, what is it when you stop caring about your work, and particularly when your work is kind of your life? Because that, that's what being freelance, and particularly being a freelance artist, often feels like. Then does that mean that you stop caring about your life? In chief complaint, I worked in a, a slightly different way there because I was really interested at, at the time in following on from a lot of my previous work in this question of how we are read and who has the authority to, to kind of produce readings of us as subjects. And so in previous work, I've looked at things like sentiment analysis and using Google to read through my diaries. So using using these different kind of interlocutors and agents to produce narratives that draw from my own personal experience. So but she complained the central video installation there was called Exit Scripts. And I worked with coders using this uh, software that supposedly claims to analyse emotional valence in voice. So it detects moods. And I was really interested in the way that like your that surveillance and forensic technology like this is becoming increasingly intimate and bodily so it can read things at the level of not what you're saying but how you're saying it and looking at how that links to way that that surveillance also operates at this kind of bodily level so it scans like posture and gait and uh, also heart rate and sweat and all of these things that can happen at this yeah at this physical level and my my interest in, in that was also the ways that this could be, it can be used towards creating ever better and more granular portraits of us as consumer citizens. So, for example, you're scrolling through your feed and your heart flutters, that could be recorded or captured in some way. So, and then that would feed into a better portrait of like what do you respond to as a consumer when you're scrolling through things. But of course, it could also be used in, in terms of border control, in terms of identification. Um, so these are a lot of the concerns that were coming up in terms of working with this particular software, but then using it on these voice memos, which were like diaries, but also bits where I was kind of talking to myself in the way that a friend would talk to you. And I was interested there in the way that almost from a kind of feminist perspective of wanting to make visible that type of effective labour of just supporting friends as a form of work that should be valorised and valued, but it's often kind of, particularly within like heterosexual couple relationships, assumed to just be the role of the woman to carry out and usually to, to be done with a smile. And so kind of trying to look at that work as trying to almost spare friends from having to do that work by using my phone as this therapist for that kind of overspill when you're like, you've called this person 15 times, you just can't call them anymore. And then the overspill then becomes your phone. And I should just say that I was doing recordings while wandering around in public, but because I was holding my phone, you couldn't tell. So it just looked like I was having a phone conversation. So it was a little bit like being a little bit mad, walking around talking to yourself, but it didn't look like that's what I was doing. These were, in a similar way to agents who scared of instead of death, were transcribed automatically, and then I wrote a text out of them. And actually, you were involved in one of the outputs of that. I invited three friends who are also writers, to read different sections of this transcribed text, which is also full of mistakes and mistranscriptions where I've been speaking Greek and the software has come up with complete nonsense, obviously, and asked uh, you all to interpret it in some way. And that became a publication called Advice for the Fallen, which was there alongside the video. 
Yes, I think the three writers were uh, me, Holly Pester and Mira Matar and we all edited part of the transcript and like reordered it and added some material and I think I added some material uh, about the voice from a Guardian article I'd written in 2010 or 11 for the series I did about transitioning and about speech and language therapy as well as some references to a lot of conversations that we'd had with each other um, over the sort of previous three years. I mean I think we met in 2015 at an event at Space in London. I'd been hearing about you quite a lot because I was just finishing my memoir and I was really struggling with the memoir as a form. I didn't like it. I didn't really want to be using it. I just kind of painted myself into this corner where I had to use it. And, you know, a lot of people from minority backgrounds, as well as a lot of like women artists and writers, will talk about feeling kind of obliged to use autobiographical material in a way that sort of cisgender and heterosexual white men in particular are not really culturally so obliged to do. Around about that time, I think one of the first bits of work I saw of yours was a short video called Screen Tears, uh, which responded to I'm Too Sad to Tell You by Bastianada, which I think you'd made in 2008, which funnily enough was the same time that I I wrote a short story in response to uh, Arda at the same time. So clearly there was something in the air for both of us. But, you know, this was a reinterpretation of Bastianada's famous short film of him crying uh, on screen without any kind of explanation and you restaged that video, but, you know, crying on screens that were kind of publicly available and highlighting the sort of mediated nature of presenting that emotion to people. And that mediation of emotion and presenting that mediation feels to me like a key theme in your work. So I'd like to ask you sort of two questions about that. And one is how audiences, people in your life perhaps, respond to how kind of emotionally open and candid your work is and things like your Twitter feed are maybe it'd be interesting to talk about that as well and the second is how you deal with being typecast as an artist who deals with technology when actually you're doing something slightly different to that I think yeah I'm glad you mentioned the screen because I've kind of forgotten about that and one of the things to say about it is that I've made a video of myself crying that tells you how old it is and then I've gone into various like curries in different parts of London and uh, put the DVD in under the pretext of needing to test out the screen before buying it and then recorded the screen. So it was really interesting this idea of first of all using a pub, uh, an already existing and available framework within which to exhibit. So rather than a gallery in a sense, you know, you've got all of these screens using them. So a little bit of a kind of guerrilla tactic there of taking what's available but repurposing it for your own ends but also try to look at this idea of public space of what is the public space and is a commercial a commercial environment like Curry's a public space well clearly not but in some way it is just in the same way as let's say the spaces around St Martin's you know Granary Square are ostensibly uh, public I mean they look public they're open but they're not they're private and the way that you can tell is that if you were to suddenly start trying to stage a protest or skateboard or be homeless, you know, you could be thrown out because you're actually on public property. So that was one of my interests at that time as well, was what constitutes the public sphere. And in some ways, I think my, my shift into Twitter and into using social media was an interest also in looking at that as a new type of, of public sphere. But also, as you're asking about well, the emotion plays. I mean, again, that was all this kind of mediated emotion in screen tears 
you see a person crying in public, which is ostensibly the exposure of, or at least kind of display of a personal emotion, a personal moment of heightened emotion. But there's also something completely impersonal about it, not just because of where it's happening, but also because you have no idea why the person's crying, which is a bit like the Bastianada. But I suppose one of the things that's always interested in me is how um, emotion and affect is both something personal that occurs in individuals like heart or, or psychic space, but it's also public and publicly read. And from the minute that it's kind of commodified, it, it's inextricable from a wider public sphere and forms of circulation. I'm always surprised when people say that my work is quite candid or kind of emotionally open, because on the one hand, that's something that I'm really kind of gearing towards, almost trying to see, trying to see personal experience and emotions like that as not something to be protected and to be kind of privately hoarded and kept aside and to try and put them out there to take away the sense of them being some kind of special thing that I am suffering, but rather be linked to a wider collective experience. So in some sense, I like this gesture of trying to kind of open what should be or has been kind of traditionally hidden for, for others to see. And also for, for the, the way that, that I feel sometimes with, with work like that, it creates a sense of a bond to, to other people. And you were also asking about how my work has sometimes been kind of typecast as being maybe about technology. And I guess... One of the ways I've responded to that is, I think it was David Hall, I had a really great quote of his uh, somewhere, and he was writing for quite a long time ago, talking about how artists became interested in the media of their day, not because of them as kind of gadgets and like, oh, look what this can do, but because of the way that it linked to wider institutions. So working with film because of the way that it linked to like, cinema or working with video because of its connection to TV, but also to the military. So rather than just looking at them as kind of aesthetic forms or media to, to use just to capture things, it's how do they link to the wider institutions? And that's how I always saw my use of, let's say, technology, which again, even now talking about it, it's like, what do we even mean by that? Oh yeah, and also just to say that it's at the moment when something becomes a mass media that I'm interested in it, something which can be understood by everybody, like everybody knows what, what Twitter is now. So it is a technology, I guess, I mean, it is digital, and of course it's linked to surveillance capitalism and all of these types of digital platform capitalism, but it's also a mass medium, and I think that's the bit that I'm really interested in, is like, when does it become a, a mass medium, almost like a, a pop genre to draw on, because that's at the point where everybody understands it, and it's part of collective experience and collective understanding of how we connect to each other and how information circulates. I mean, I think this might be a good moment to talk about your book, The Outage, which was published by Banner Repeater in 2018. Um, and this was a, you know, an autobiographical text which you kind of outsourced to someone else to write based on your digital footprint. So can we maybe talk a bit about why you decided to do this, what the process was like and what the outcome was like and how you felt about that outcome? So I suppose this also links back to what you were talking about with memoir. And it's an attempt to write a memoir without writing it myself, but written from my archives as kind of spread out online in different places, but also 
through the things that are behind the password war. And I was quite interested at the time in making a, an analogy between what lies behind the password war and in, let's say, your personal Dropbox and in your Google searches and, and not to mention all of your emails and uh, thousands of chat messages, kind of looking at, at this as a type of, of interiority and in some kind of interior space which links to the idea of a kind of private space. But of course, none of those archives are private in the sense of you may have access to them, but you don't own them. And they are completely linked into this wider digital economy. Facebook owns WhatsApp. Everything that's behind your password in Google is also part of its value creation and the extraction of information to do with your browsing and uh, you know consumer habits which all lead into or ever more kind of granular portraits of who we are as consumers so what i did with the outage was i commissioned a writer to create a ghost-written fictional memoir based on what they found on me online and also a collection of stuff taken from my personal archives. So URL links, Google searches, my Amazon history, my YouTube history and recommended and a whole collection of things like that. And just asked them to kind of craft this. And as well as being interested in the idea of the profile, you know, that there's a kind of double meaning of the profile in the sense of this circulating image of the self, which is also uh, linked particularly to artists in the idea of being a high profile artist. So it's linked to a certain type of value and reputation. But of course, it's also linked to the, the profiles that we all have now, not just through dating apps, which are things that, you know, we may create that pro- that profile intentionally, usually make, trying to make ourselves look good. But all the other profiles which are kind of drawn of us without our conscious knowledge of it. So I was really interested at that time in the sense of like, you may know what you're putting out there, but you don't really know how it's being read or how it's being interpreted and to what ends and what kind of value is being extracted at that at, at every level. So I wanted it to be a complete stranger, somebody who wasn't drawing on any kind of personal interaction with me in order to create this fictional memoir. And the writer and artist, John Harrington, wrote the memoir. Without me giving him any direction on how to do it, he collaged a lot of my own writing from various projects, and from interviews and also from my Tumblr where I put various notes. And the way that it's put together is you, you really can't tell which bit is a quotation from a book that I'd put on Tumblr or which bit is taken from an artist interview that I'd done or which bit is him writing that together and sometimes adding bits in. So it's really a kind of collective text whereby he's creating this new protagonist out of my own writing and using that to kind of to tell a story that's ostensibly about an outage, an electricity outage, and bringing up this idea of what would happen if the servers crashed and all of this information would get lost, but also obviously the idea of the outage as a sense of being outed, being exposed, being made vulnerable, and being kind of shown up in some way. And so that was the kind of double meaning of it. And I mean, I really loved it when I first read it because I felt like it had he had really grasped something in what I was trying to do with my work at the time, which was really looking at how, what is it that we do when we perform, when we kind of perform ourselves, and at what point do we end up almost instrumentalising ourselves and our backgrounds and our personal experiences in order to become more compelling 
as subjects of, let's say, a memoir or of a Twitter feed? And to what extent do we end up kind of using our personal relationships or our traumas even as material to keep the attention going? That's also a lot of the stuff I'm still looking at now, you know, in terms of going back to what I was saying earlier, the kind of the hustle and, and the reputation and how that's also maintained by, let's say, an entertaining Twitter personality, which is some, partly what one of, the, one of the performance kind of talks I did last year was all about the idea of the deep acting, which is taken from Arlie Hostichard, talking about the emotional labour and the acting that's required in service work. So how how does it almost become a kind of effective automatism where we don't even know if we're doing it intentionally or if it's something that's become so ingrained as a practice of making sure that we're visible, we have a profile. And so that, that all of that kind of comes through in the book, which has also got quite a confessional tone to it because of the, the bits of material that he found of mine. And, I mean, as you know, probably quite a few people know this, by now we got together after the book was written and then this, this introduced a whole other element of kind of an experiment, a self-experiment where I, set, I was both the person setting up the experiment and also the kind of guinea pig it, it, it was tested on. You know, this kind of completely unexpected outcome of it. And I, I write about that after. So, I mean, you mentioned it in the beginning that in, in my bio, the fictionist method, that I talk about this piece at length there, but also in that kind of the fallout of what happens next. And do you talk about getting together with somebody in the way that that ties into a very cheesy, like heterosexual, heteronormative story of like, oh, love comes when you least expect it. And then it ends up becoming like, oh, a cute story, rather than what it set out to be as a kind of which was a kind of critical look at memoir and the idea of outsourcing memoir. But then these kind of real-life events become part of it. And then, of course, the minute you talk about it publicly, it also becomes part of the work. And that sense of an expanding parameter, the work where you, you never know where, where it ends, I see also as reflecting in, in the work that I'm doing now and, you know, and over the past few years in terms of like what freelance life is. Because it is kind of that. It's like everything is part of work. You're always working, even though you kind of don't have a job. And so you're, you're never stopping. And every single thing needs to feed into your work, including your relationships, or, or, or so it can feel. Those questions were, were all very much part of the, the outage. I'm sure there's a lot more I can say about it, but I don't know if there's anything well i'd actually like to take those themes into like a brief discussion of your empathy deck project which i think you were doing around about the same time so maybe if you'd like to you know explain what that project was um and how with a a bot rather than another human being you were kind of giving a lot of your personal material over to a program that would kind of reconfigure it and give it back to an audience in unexpected and quite surprising and often quite humorous ways as a result of having worked with a, a human collaborator on the outage, I should say also that when I first read it, it was a bit like reading my obituary. It had quite a profound impact on me, which took quite a few years to really un- unravel. There's something about the exposure of that and the kind of shock, and then also falling in love with John, which was kind of quite a head bump. So with the empathy deck, I instead it was a bot that I created with Tom Armitage. And what it was doing was creating automated cards, which actually, if you look at them, they, they're a little bit like memes, but also a little bit like 
a kind of slightly cheap, like motivational quote, things that you see on something like Pinterest or Instagram. But they kind of come out a bit wrong because they're written by a bot and the text that they're drawing on was about 80,000 words of my own diaries over, I think, like a 10 year period written on my computer in the morning, which I still do, although I haven't been able to do that much of late because I'm feeling a bit wild. And so I was drawing on, on all of these diaries on the one hand and kind of mixing them up and matching them up with a whole collection of like self-help and self-knowledge texts, which I took, I had quite a broad reading bit there. It was everything from astrology, uh, tarot readings, dating profiles, things like Myers-Briggs, personality tests, Enneagrams. So all these different texts which would pertain to the idea of self-knowledge, which again is something that I've always been really interested in, in the way that self-knowledge is kind of linked to what's being called a transformation economy which is like the next step up from the experience economy. Because like the experience economy is like, oh, I had an experience, I had a memory, you know, that's the thing of value, and that's the thing that can be commodified. Whereas the transformation economy is like, well, I want an experience, but I want an experience that's going to change me in some way for the better. And that's where a lot of stuff like meditation retreats, workshops, you know, self-development, self-improvement courses, everything from kind of creative writing to getting in touch with your inner whatever it is, all of this type of stuff kind of speaks to this, again, a kind of crossover between leisure and work, because it's like, le- it's leisure, it's absolutely pleasurable, it's something you can do on the weekend, but it seems to also be geared towards making this kind of better version of yourself, which can probably be used in some way, for example, by being a better worker, or by being able to handle your stress better and not get so pissed off with your boss, and so on. So this kind of overlap between leisure and labour, was in the text that I used, but also in the fact that I it's a Twitter bot. It's separate from my Twitter, but it's also linked to me, obviously, because it's using my diaries, and it responds to people directly. So it was waiting to, to pick up, particularly on emotional language. So people use the words love or hate or jealous. That's the kind of stuff it would pick up on and responds to by then finding those words in this huge database of text and making these texts from it, which was then superimposed onto a background to create this kind of little digital card, along with a little sticker thing in the middle, which was a bit like a, an attempt to make a kind of emoji from various objects, which were also keyworded. So that's the kind of process how, of, of how it worked. But one of the things that I was interested in there was also the automation of, of a certain type of emotional labour involved with being available and on Twitter all the time, which of course, as a person, as a, as a handle, is very hard to do. You know, I'm sure we've all experienced this in the past few days, the kind of overwhelm of the constant, even when it's people you love responding to, it can be hard to get back to, it can be hard to even have space to, to know how to, or like, shit, maybe I left it too long, and oh God, like I favorited her tweet, but not his tweet, and then, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff that comes up with being on Twitter and wanting to kind of be a friend to people, in a way, having a bot to do that instead, like the bot never needs to sleep, it could be working across all time zones, it's always listening, and it's always got something to, to come back with, which on the one hand is kind of like heartening, like, oh, you know, it's always there, but it's so easy to see the dystopian flip side of that, where it's like, oh, you're always being followed, it's scanning everything 
you say, at all times, it's very easy to see how that could be used in a context of scanning what word you use online and like, wow, what does that say about you as a, as a personality? What kind of, what are your political inclinations and so on? So again, like as emotional valence software, I'm really interested in these kind of double sides and how these softwares can be used. But yeah, I, I basically kind of created this automated version of me to come out with kind of homilies, except they often came out quite embarrassing or stupid and they would often be responding to let's say somebody I was trying to impress a friend or maybe like a curator or somebody who I might have worked with and it would come out with, with something really embarrassing or, or stupid and of course I had no control over it. So that was another thing that I was interested in is kind of building in a certain element of risk of like making yourself vulnerable but also potentially be betrayed by one of your own creations because it could just pull something out and put it with something else that would end up being quite embarrassing or so it's quite interesting kind of making that part of it and how I and it be part of my or I don't know. No, it's just I'm just thinking there of like I found it interesting that when often when people would like one of the cards that they were sent, because it would send it directly to its followers, people would then tag me in it. And I was really interested at the time of like this idea of it being a kind of proxy for me and kind of a stand in for the work that I couldn't do. But at the same time, it creates, uh, it does create this kind of weird, mashed up autobiography written through the language of self-help and a kind of, so I've been interested even from the outage onwards of this idea that there's a whole genre of memoirs, particularly around addiction, which always draws on personal experience, but with the, where the ending is the kind of therapeutic narrative where it comes out good. And, you know, now I'm going to tell you about how it came out good and what you can do like. So there's kind of pedagogical impulse in there, but based on one's own personal experience. And actually it's the personal experience which is the guarantor that it's real, that it counts. But here I am and I've made it. Does that make sense? (laughs) It does make sense, yeah. I'd actually like to start to bring the conversation to a close now. We've talked quite a lot about how your work uses text and, you know, how that is mediated through contemporary digital technology but as a lot of this conversation suggests you're very interested in writing and I want to talk to you about two (laughs) pre-internet authors that you've been engaging with lately one of which is Kathy Acker who I don't want to spend too much time on because I think she's actually been discussed an awful lot lately but you were part of a performance of a I think previously unperformed Kathy Acker play at the ICA last year for the um, exhibition around Acker's work so you can talk about that a bit if you want but you don't have to because I'm particularly interested in talking to you about the Greek poet Katerina Gogu who is not particularly well known in the UK her works haven't been translated but you've been working on translating them so um i wonder if you'd like to talk about either gogu or the pair of those uh, those authors and what they mean to you why you've been working with them yeah it's, it's interesting because i having done the, the performance of desire at the ica last year where i worked alongside the worcester group and um two other artists to create this performance in quite a short amount of time based on this script that had never been performed before. I've been thinking about the differences between Kathy Acker and Katrina Gogol and the different ways particularly that they related to ideas of being an icon or a brand or a kind of known figure. So 
for, for people who haven't come across Katharina Vogel, she is a Greek poet who was very invested in the anarchist movement. Her first publication, Tria Kaligalistera, uh, Three Clips Left, came out in 1978, and she was very active, particularly through the 80s. But previously to that, she was known and had already got a kind of public standing as an actress in the Phenos films, which were the kind of Greek Hollywood of the post-war era. And she had started acting from a very young age. She was often the kind of the supporting role. She very rarely, in those earlier films, she tended to play the best friend, the slightly goofy, zany character, or the maid or the babysitter. But she was known as an actress. And then in, in her later career, she started making much more politicised films. There's Dovali Beboni, which literally translates as the heavy melon. It's all about labour conditions in the late 70s, looking at people having people moving from the countryside in Greece to, to the city and getting work as waiters or as seamstresses and and then also Paragelia, which means special request. Anyway, I won't go into what that film's about too much, but quite a lot of that I suggested that we used in the Kafiaka production. So there are a whole section of uh, sections of it where there are parts of that film playing. And there's one of the monologues that I did, which is actually in French. So I'm speaking French, but in time to her delivery, because she reads some of her poems in this film, Paragelia. And you should definitely look it up online because her delivery is incredible. And I was really interested in, in also the way that she uses, she's not afraid, and in fact, she really makes that part of her poetry, is the performance of it, the delivery, like a certain kind of emotional charge that's put into it, which I guess comes from her acting. But yeah, so in, in her later work and also in her poetry, you get the sense of her commitment to do, to collective struggle above all other things and a kind of rejection of this idea of fame or of success or of her being some kind of face or of not wanting to, not wanting to sell out, I guess, in the, in the language of the, of the era. I should say I've been trying to translate her poetry for a long time, but wow, it's, I, had, I hadn't realised how, how hard it was, but when I first read her poetry in Greek, it really had an effect on me because it really kind of brought, first of all, you know, she's writing about it in Athens of the 80s, which is where I grew up, and there's something about the cultural specificity of it which really affected me because, it, again, it made me feel, and I think this links back to what you were saying before about the kind of mediation of, of emotion, there's something about being bi bicultural and always between languages and between cultures, where there's always this sense that there's something lost, you know. So no matter how much you, the people who I love in this country who, who don't share that background can never understand what that is. And, I, and that really came through when trying to translate, because I was thinking, but how can somebody who's not Greek understand the meaning of like that brand or that street? Uh, you know, and it really kind of boggled my mind of how how can how translation in general works, but particularly in poetry, because how can all of that atmosphere of a place and of a culture be conveyed to somebody who doesn't have access to it? And it really kind of made apparent again to me how much is. Uh, how, I mean, of course, we all have this at some at some level, and we all have a sense of, of not belonging. But there's there's something about always, you know, I've lived my whole adult life in England and I, can, I pass as 100% English but there's always that part of me which is like but I'm not you know this could just kind of go go off on a on a tangent but there's something about her 
her writing which really brought home to me that sense of the kind of impossibility of, of translation and there being something quite amazing with, with within that gap. So yeah, so the attempt to translate it continues. I don't know how much of my work is in translation, but there are bits and pieces here and there and you can look it up on the internet until I get around to it. Great. Well, we'll um, we'll share some of those for subscribers yeah. to the show. We'll uh, add all the links to the um, Patreon episode description. I think that's a really nice place to finish. And uh, yeah, it's been a thoroughly enjoyable interview, as I knew it was going to be. So, um, Erica, thanks a lot for coming on Sweet 212. Thanks so much for inviting me, Julia. And I'm going to be seeing you over Skype for the next few months. That's the only way I'm going to be seeing you. Yeah, I mean, we, we are recording the day after the United Kingdom was finally put on lockdown during the coronavirus epidemic, which we all knew was coming and indeed thought was going to happen a couple of weeks ago. But yes, uh, so that's the, the context in which you've been speaking. I will be doing hopefully many more of these uh, these interviews over the coming weeks. I think the lockdown is going to last for a while, so this will be our, our main output. So it just remains for me to say thank you for listening. I've been Juliet Jakes, hosting the second of our Suite 212 sessions. Uh, I'll be back with another episode very soon. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs>